Assalamu alaikum, hello and welcome to the Voice of Islam Living History Program. My name is Dr. Muhammad Iqbal and I'll be your host for this program. As listeners will know, the Living History team have embarked on a seven-part series on the history of money and trade. In the modern world, there is a common saying, especially in the West, that money makes the world go round. The phrase basically means that everything in this world would stop without money and to some extent this statement is true. Without money, you cannot afford a shelter on your head, buy the food to survive or go from point A to point B, etc. In part one of this series, entitled Genesis Cows and Crops to Coin Trade, my fellow panellists and I explored the origins of early trade in money and the introduction of coins, metal coins. In part two, entitled The Rise of the Great Eurasian Empires, we looked at the way gold and silver took centre stage in trade and conquest that shaped many of the large and influential empires. And in part three, entitled Worlds of Conquerors, Prophets and Reformers, we looked at the role religion played in shaping empires and the trade between nations and empires. In particular, we looked at the interaction between the Romans and the Jewish people leading to the rise of Christianity. And we also looked briefly at the rise of Islam. In today's program, which is part four of this series and is entitled Islamic Civilization, a Bridge Between East and West, we will look in much more detail how the Muslims during the Golden Age of Islam picked up new ideas from India, China and the Greeks and how they refined many of these and passed them on to Europe. We will also look at the fragmentation of the Muslim world into separate powerful empires such as the Ottoman, Safavid and the Mughal empires and finally, we will look at how China became the most powerful land and sea power during the Yuan and the Ming dynasties and the European Renaissance. So to explore these fascinating developments, I am joined by my panelists Amjad Hussain and Ari Femud. Assalamualaikum to both of you. Waalaikum salam. So for today's program, let me again set the scene for uh, our listeners. Um, a short time before the Holy Prophet Islam passed away in 632 of the Christian era, he gave the last of farewell sermon to his followers and stressed the need for justice, unity and equality of mankind. And I quote from his uh, sermon, O people, lend me an attentive ear, for I know not whither after this year I shall ever be amongst you again. Therefore listen to what I am saying to you very carefully and take these words to those who could not be present here today. And he went on to say, All mankind is from Adam and Eve. An Arab has no superiority over a non-Arab, nor a non-Arab has any superiority over an Arab. Also a white has no superiority over black, nor does a black have any superiority over a white except by piety and good action. Learn that every Muslim is a brother to every Muslim and that the Muslims constitute one brotherhood. Nothing shall be legitimate to a Muslim which belongs to a fellow Muslims unless it was given freely and willingly. Do not therefore do injustice to yourselves. Remember, one day you will appear before Allah and answer for your deeds. So beware. Do not stray from the path of righteousness after I am gone. It's a wonderful message for humanity, Amjad, isn't it? It's uh, amazing how strongly he influences companions. Absolutely. 
So when the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, passed away, the Muslim community was in state of absolute shock. Some even refused to believe that he was gone. However, Abu Bakr, the first successor, also known as Caliph, uh, set the tone and direction for Muslims with the following words. Muslims, if you adored Muhammad, know that Muhammad is dead. If it is Allah, God, that you adore, know that he liveth. He never dies. Forget not this verse of the Quran, which states, Muhammad is only a man charged with a mission. Before him, there have been men who received the heavenly mission and died. Nor this verse, Thou too, Muhammad, shall die as others have died before him. Had it not been for Abu Bakr's careful warnings, people might have venerated Prophet Muhammad and taken him as a divine figure. But he had made it quite clear that he too was a human and bound by the laws of nature. From his early days, Islam focused on total submission to God. The success of the Prophet's mission and a healthy disregard for superstition and mythology. Muslims saw themselves as the catalyst for change in the whole world, without the intervention of mythological gods from the skies. With Arabia having united under a single centralized state in 633 CE, small forces were dispatched into Iraq and Palestine to face the mighty Persian and the Byzantine empires. Within a decade, Muslims had dismantled the Persian Empire and captured Jerusalem, the holy city of the Jews and Christians, and taken over Syria and Egypt. By 700 CE, Islam stretched as far as the Indus River in the east and Algiers in the west. In 711 CE, the Muslims captured Spain, for instance, and they advanced as far as France. In the east, they defeated the Chinese in 751 CE. In the east, they had defeated the mighty armies of the Chinese Tang dynasty, and along the way, the Muslims conquered some provinces of India. However, in India, they discovered something that was much more important than the usual land and treasures. They discovered the Hindu numerals and zero, which under the Arab adoption would transform the understanding and application of mathematics and uh, uh, making trade so much easier. Indeed, without the zero, we would not have been able to operate our stock markets smoothly or develop our computing technology or go to the moon and send probes into far-flung heavens. The story of zero is an ancient one and goes to the heart of our most sacred beliefs and our understanding of the universe. It points to the philosophical differences that have separated the East and West for many centuries, both in our scientific and theological thought. A prominent American mathematician, Tobias Danzig, the author of the book Number, the Language of Science, makes a very bold claim for the zero, and he says, In the history of culture, the discovery of zero will always stand out as one of the greatest single achievements of the human race. Now, the Indian uh, name for zero was sunya, meaning empty, which the Arabs turned into sifr. When Western scholars and tradesmen described the new number to their colleagues, they turned it into cipher, or in some cases into Latin-sounding word yielding zephyrus. So Arif, again, this is such an important story to tell to our listeners. Absolutely. And if we talk about uh, counting as a very basic uh, phenomenon, uh, we know that counting has been used by all ancient cultures to keep track of the number um, of members of a group or the number of animals or other possessions that they may have had. Uh, and there's archaeological evidence suggesting that humans have been counting for at least 50,000 years. Now, the issue was is that early counting did not have a zero uh, for reasons which we'll come to in a minute. 
and this was done uh, often using body parts. So for example, the use of two hands and ten fingers, and in some cultures using the feet also. Uh, for obvious reasons, counting in most cultures started from the number one, or one, so one as in the number one, or one as in the word O-N-E, one. So you either had one child or two or more, and you had one goat or two or three goats, etc. Zero was not needed because you knew that you did not have zero goats. Uh, and if you owed someone a goat, that was different matter because, uh, and we'll deal with the concept of debt a little bit later on. So people believe that God or nature had given mankind five fingers on each hand. Uh, and because of this, five seemed to be a favorite base system across most cultures throughout the world. With two hands and ten fingers, we developed a base ten system. Counting then moved uh, onto tally marks uh, on bone or wood or stones. And basic tally marks had a vertical or horizontal line for each item uh, from one to four. When the fifth item was counted, a diagonal line was drawn to show five. This was repeated again, and you had two times five, or five plus five, which was then, and then so on. Now, as the complexity of life increased, along with the number of things to count, these methods were no longer sufficient. Um, efficient counting systems became essential tools for trade as society developed, and different civilizations came up with ways of recording higher numbers. Many of these systems were just extensions of tally marks, with new symbols added to represent larger magnitudes of value, and each symbol was repeated as many times as necessary, and, and then they were all added together. The ancient Egyptians were masters at counting and used the system of numeration based on multiples of 10, often rounded off to the higher power, written in hieroglyphs. Um, the Egyptian numerals were used from around 3000 BC until the early first millennium of the Christian era. However, the Egyptians had no concept of a place-valued system such as the decimal system we look at today. Multiples of these values were expressed by repeating the symbols as many times as needed. For instance, a stone carving from Karnak, uh, one of the regions, shows the number 4622 um, in this descriptive form of ones and different figures, uh, which might be a flower-shaped or a finger-shaped or, you know, with, with tens, etc. Um, so, for example, this 4622 would be written as four flower shapes, um, six sort of, uh, how do you, would you describe it, Amjid, the uh, sort of curl-shaped uh, figures, uh, two ends, which are two tens, and then two twos. So giving fours, it's so cumbersome. Uh, but, you know, that, that was the complexity for those, with the Egyptians and the Greeks. But tell us more, because the Greeks didn't have anything better system. Indeed, yes. Uh, centuries later, the Greeks borrowed uh, these concepts from the Egyptians and developed their own counting system. At first, the Greek system of numbers was quite similar to the Egyptians. However, instead of using pictures to represent numbers, as the Egyptians did, uh, the Greeks used letter. Um, H, eta, uh, stood for uh, hecton, uh, which is a hundred, basically. Mu M stood for Marioi, which is 10,000. Uh, though the Greek's number system was uh, more sophisticated than the Egyptian system, it did not have a zero and it was not the most advanced way of writing numbers in the ancient world. 
that title had to be given to the Babylonian uh, style of counting. And thanks to this system, zero finally appeared in the east, the fertile crescent, uh, the present-day uh, Iraq. The Babylonian numeral system was not base 10, it was uh, basically base 60, what we call hexagesimal, uh, and uh, was the first positional system to be developed. Its, its influence is uh, present today, for instance, in many ways, and angles are counted in tallies related to 60, such as 60 minutes in an hour and 360 degrees in a circle, for instance. And only two symbols were used. You know, they were, for instance, the stick will represent uh, one of the systems of counting. The other is like a chevron, like a chevron. Like um, you use less than and greater to type a wedge, isn't it? It's yeah, like a wedge like shape, a, yes. Yeah, uh, like yeah, a chevron, yeah. a sign, mathematical sign for less than to count tens were used to notate the 59 and uh, non-zero digits. These symbols and their values were combined to form a digit in a single value uh, notation. Uh, quite similar to that of the Egyptian numerals. For example, the combination of uh, two wedges, two chevrons, and uh, three stick figures represented digit 23. Uh, so you'll have 10 and a 10, and uh, then three single sticks uh, to represent a 23. I mean, there were, pro- there were problems with this system as well, because they found it very difficult to differentiate between, say, writing a 61 and then 3,601. So they had to introduce all sorts of other things to show sort of placeholding. But zero still didn't really uh, have a a place. A number's uh, value comes from its place on the number line that we're familiar with, from its position compared with other numbers. So you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. All have their values defined and are written in the order. At this stage in its evolution, there was no value for zero where should it appear on the number line, for example? Even today, when we look at our phones or computer keyboards, where does the zero appear? After nine. And yet we know the zero does not belong after nine. It comes earlier. The reason for this strange placement will become clearer later. Later on, the Romans developed their own versions of numbers from one to 100, etc. And they were even more complex than the Egyptians and uh, the, the, the Greeks. Uh, you know, with their ones and threes and fours and the V-shaped for five and all that and X for ten and all that. But to do multiplications and uh, additions was really, really complex uh, uh, using the Roman numerals. So really, the Roman numeral system was not suited to multiplication and handling very large numbers. Only the best mathematicians were able to multiply or divide large numbers. For example, M times M. God knows what it would end up for a normal person, but they knew how to work it out. So this is where things needed simplifying, Arif, take us to the next stage of development. So absolutely. So there was all of these different systems. Um, and the way to you uh, a more useful and elegant system lay in having a zero as a placeholder and also using uh, something called positional notation. Uh, a positional system would reuse the same symbols, assigning them different values based on their position in the sequence. Uh, and several civilizations developed positional notation independently, including the Babylonians, the ancient Chinese, and the Mayans. So, for example, if we wanted to um, have the number 1348, we would have 1 at the beginning, which would represent 1,000, 3 as the next number, which would represent 300s, that's 300 in total. Then we would have 4, which would represent 4 tens, that's 40, and then 8, which would represent the 8 units, and that would then become 1,300, 
So, um, if you try to write that in the Norman way, <laughs> you're gone. Just spell it in out. the Roman way, it was a little bit more complicated. It was M for the thousand, three C's uh, for the three hundred, uh, XL, which is forty, and then V one one one, which represents five one one one, which is eight. So not Very as easy, complicated not system. as yeah, much more complicated than writing today's yeah. method of one three four eight. But still, they had a method, even though it was still very complicated. In Western culture, this is quite an interesting point. Um, zero was avoided for a long time and only introduced after the Arab Muslims showed its importance to Europe. The reason why the Greeks rejected the use of zero was on philosophical grounds, and this rejection was also followed through by the pagan Romans as well as Christendom. Why did the Greeks and the Western world generally reject the zero when many of the great thinkers knew how useful it was in doing calculations and solving complex problems? The reason is because zero posed a major challenge to the whole Greek and Western understanding of the universe, which dictated that there is no void or no emptiness. Um, in the world of some famous scientists such as Pythagoras, uh, Aristotle and Ptolemy and many others that followed, there was no such thing in the universe as the void or nothing. Therefore, uh, there could not be a zero in Western thinking and philosophy um, an acceptance of zero would have meant a rejection or destruction of their universe as they knew it. Well, this is such an important philosophical point of view, which many people are unaware of in the West. So whilst the West was afraid of the concept of void and the infinite, the East welcomed these two important concepts. The void had an important place in the Hindu religion. Like many Eastern religions, Hinduism was steeped in the symbolism of duality, creation and destruction, where were intermingled in Hindu philosophy. The god Shiva, for example, was both creator and destroyer of the world and was depicted with the drum uh, of creation in one hand and a flame of destruction in another. Shiva also represented nothingness. According to Hindu philosophy, the universe was born out of the void, and unlike the Greek or Western universe, it was infinite in extent. So it is still unclear and debated when the Indians developed the Babylonian-style place-value number system. Um, the earliest reference to the Hindu numerals comes from a Syrian bishop who wrote in 662 CE, and that is obviously when the Muslims conquered the Middle East, of how the Indians did calculations, and he writes in inverted commas, by means of nine signs. This suggests that the Indians used nine and not ten numerals, so the zero was evidently not amongst them, even though the Indians knew it had a place. And this is where, you know, when you, you have to go on Google and uh, the images are really to see, understand this. You look at the Brahmi, the Hindu, the Arabic, and the medieval sort of... Uh, uh, and numerals, and your listeners will understand more. It is believed that Indian numerals originated with the Brahmi numerals around the 3rd century BCE, during the Gupta period, which is the early 4th century to the late 6th century of the Christian era, considered as the golden age of India by historians. And the Gupta numerals developed from the Brahmi numerals were spread over large areas by the Gupta as they conquered territory. So I'm just take us through Brahma Gupta's contribution and the Indians in relation to the this. mathematician Brahma Gupta he 
lived circa 598 to circa 660, uh, 660 CE, was the first Indian mathematician and uh, astronomer who provided rules for arithmetic manipulations uh, that apply to zero and to negative numbers. His book, uh, Brahma Safase Siddhanta, is the earliest known text to treat zero as a number in its own right rather than um, as simply a placeholder digit in representing another number, as was done by the Babylonians, or as a symbol uh, for lack of uh, quantity, uh, was done by Ptolemy and the Romans. Um, the historians of science, Joyce Sarton, for instance, uh, called Brahma Gupta one of the greatest scientists of his race and the greatest of his time. The early Muslims were quick to absorb the wisdom of the people they had conquered, uh, particularly the Indians. Um, for instance, in uh, 773 CE, the Abbasi Caliph al-Mansur instructed translations uh, were to be made of many ancient treaties, including the Romans and the Greeks, the Indians and others. Later on, Caliph al-Mamun founded the great library known as Bat al-Hikmat, the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. It was to become the center of learning in the Eastern world, and one of the first and the greatest scholars was uh, the famed mathematician Muhammad ibn Musa al-Khwarizmi, uh, and obviously al algorithmi is known, and yes. the word algorithm comes from his name. Um, so in um, 813 AD, he prepared astronomical tables using Hindu numerals, and around 825 AD, he published a book synthesizing Greek and Hindu knowledge that also contained his own contributions to mathematics, including an explanation uh, for the use of zero. His book, for instance, is called On the Calculation with Hindu Numerals. Uh, it was published circa 825 AD uh, and was followed by Hindi's four-volume work on the use of the Indian numerals, uh, and that's circa 830 AD. So the, the Muslim scholars could see the great benefits of Indian numerals and they had no major problem in accepting the zero unlike the Greeks and the Western civilization. Whilst many Muslim philosophers had great admiration for Aristotle and many of his ideas, they rejected his irrational and outdated fear of the void and the zero. The Muslims had nothing to fear from the void or nothing. In fact, the, the Quran had taught Muslims that God was self-existent and everlasting and everything had been created by God's command and it would end by his command. Whilst arguments persisted between Muslims, Christians and Jewish philosophers whether the universe had come into existence or was everlasting, almost all Muslims accepted the usefulness of the zero in day-to-day -day calculations and algebra. By the 9th century, the Arab mathematicians had perfected the base 10 system and the decimal system. The understanding of zero as a value and also as a placeholder made for reliable and consistent notation. These two points are very, very important when people look at history because there's a lot of debate at the moment. Now, in due course, multiplication and division became so much simpler Today, the Hindu-Arabic numeral system, which are based 10, is the most commonly used system globally. And as I say, you see its impact on the stock markets, on our computing system. Everything basically would come to a stop if we didn't uh, have those. So Arif, please just uh, give us some additional information on this. Yes, I think it's very important to remember that the, the contribution uh, of Muslims to major developments in the fields of science, arts and culture have been deliberately misrepresented by many in the West uh, and other cultures. Uh, this is particularly so in the field of mathematics and the introduction of the zero to the Western world. 
Now, of course, it's true that Muslims took the concept of zero from the Indians, and this is a fact which Muslims made absolutely clear in all of their major publications. But what matters is that this was uh, is that what was done with the zero after the Muslims came across it. After all, the Greeks had come across the zero well before the Muslims. And as for the discovery and the role of the zero, the ancient Mayan civilization of Mexico and Central America can claim to have applied the zero to their counting system well before the Indians and Arabs. The Mayans can claim to be the first civilization to have a place value system of digits. Unlike the early Egyptians and Greeks, the Mayans had a zero in their counting system. And unlike the Babylonians and Indians, they did the obvious thing. They started numbering days with the number zero. The Mayans used both hands and feet to count, and so their counting system was a base 20, or vigisimal system. Each of their months had 20 days, numbered 0 through to 19, and not numbered 1 through to 20, as we do today. Al-Khwarzimi's most important contribution to mathematics was his strong advocacy uh, of the Hindu numerical system, which he recognised as having the power and efficiency needed to revolutionise Islamic and Western mathematics. So the Hindu numerals 1 to 9 and 0, which have since become known as the Hindu-Arabic numerals, were soon adopted by the entire Islamic world, and Al-Khwarizmi's work was later translated into Latin by a number of Europeans. Now, the Italian mathematician Fibonacci, or Leonardo of Pisa, as his other name was, was instrumental in bringing the Hindu-Arabic numeral system into Europe around the 12th century. And we will look at this in part two and additional contributions as well. In fact, those who are involved in stocks and trade will know the Fibonacci retracement levels, the whole of the stock market and all assets, etc., measured by that tool. And, uh, you know, there are so many other contributions as well. So this is probably a good place to stop for our first uh, part of uh, this program. Uh, inshallah, we'll be back shortly to carry on of uh, how these numerals were introduced to Europe and other uh, things from the Muslim world as well. Um, don't forget to give us your feedback on Twitter at VI Living History. That's our hashtag. And also, please do go to our website, www.voiceofislam.co.uk. And under the program section, you'll see Living History SoundCloud has about 40, 50 programs now on a variety of topics, cultures, empires, etc. So we'll be back in a short while. Assalamu and welcome back to the second part of uh, um, this program, uh, which is about uh, the Islamic civilization as a bridge between the East and the West. So we talked about... Uh, how the zero was passed on to the West, especially through the works of Al-Khwarizmi and Al-Kindi, and uh, you know how they accepted that uh, they had developed the Hindu numerals, but it's what they did with them that really mattered to the world, and especially to Europe, uh, who really benefited uh, later on. So I mentioned that uh, Fibonacci, uh, or Leonardo of Pizza, in the 12th century, uh, introduced these new uh, numerals. As a, uh, a young man, Fibonacci uh, accompanied his father, uh, who was a customs official, to the trading post in um, Bugia, or the capital of the Hamadid Empire in North Africa, which is currently uh, Algeria. Now, Fibonacci travelled around the Mediterranean coast, meeting with many merchants and learning about their systems of doing arithmetic. He soon realised that 
many advantages of the Hindu Arabic system, which unlike the Roman numerals used at the time, allowed easy calculation using a place value system. So in 1202, he completed the Liber Abaci, or Book of Abacus, or the Book of Calculation, which popularized Hindu Arabic numerals in uh, Europe. Um, Arif, uh, do you again want to take us through this uh, early instrumental period uh, by Fibonacci with the manuscripts uh, that he introduced? Of course. So this manuscript advocated numeration with 10 digits, including a zero and positional notation. Uh, and the book also showed the practical use and value of this by applying the numerals to commercial bookkeeping, converting weights and measures, calculation of interest, money changing and other applications. Um, the book was well received throughout educated Europe and it had a profound impact on European thoughts. Uh, replacing Roman numerals, its ancient Egyptian multiplication method and using an abacus for calculations uh, was an advance in making business calculations much easier and faster and this assisted the growth of banking and accounting in Europe. It's quite difficult for a modern person to imagine life and the march of civilization without zero. Um, if there was no zero at all uh, on the world's trading stock exchanges, they would come to a halt and collapse. And all of our computers and phones and virtually everything that runs a modern world would also come to a standstill. So it can't be stressed how important zero, zero is because it lies at the heart of all of our counting systems. Some Muslims made many other contributions, but with the passing of the Abbasid Empire and the weakening of it, obviously other empires took over. And, uh, uh, you know, we had the rise of the great Ottoman Safavid with the Mughal Empire, as I said in the introduction. Just take us through this phase now. Well, basically, uh, Muslim civilization continued to excel in many fields under the great empires, as you mentioned, Iqbal, such as the Ottomans, the Safavids and the Mughals. Interest in science has begun to wane with time having made so many outstanding contributions to the world of science, and one is bound to ask the question, why did creative sciences die out in Islam? The decline started around, um, the scholars reckon, around 1100 uh, of the Common Era, and it was uh, nearly complete by 1350 AD. Um, so what happened during this period? More than likely, it was a combination of overconfidence, apathy, discouragement of sciences by religiously fired up zealous and opponents, uh, as noted by the famed professor, the Nobel laureate, the late Nobel laureate Professor Abdul Salam, who received his Nobel Prize in Physics in 1979, in his book and series of lectures, later compiled known as Ideas and Realities, Professor Salam quotes Ibn Khaldun. Uh, Abdul Khaldun lived uh, around 1332 to 1406 of the Common Era, who writes in his famous Al Muqaddimah, and I quote, We have heard of late that in the land of the Franks, and of the northern shores of the Mediterranean, there's a great cultivation of uh, philosophical sciences. They are said to be studied again and to be taught in numerous classes. Existing systematic expositions of them are said to be comprehensive. The people who know them are numerous, and the students of them very many. Allah knows better what exists there, but it is clear that the problems of physics are of no importance to us in our religious affairs. Therefore, we must... Leave them the alone. tragedy of the yeah, Muslim world. Yeah, that's a tragedy world, of the Muslim world, that yeah. physics and sciences yeah. Yeah. were yeah. Leave abundant. everything alone, yeah. 
And here was one of the greatest social historians of his time and one of the brightest intellectuals of his time, showing a lack of uh, curiosity and vision. Uh, and like the whole of his civilization, and was beginning to draw inwards, uh, as he quotes himself. Yeah, Ibn Khaldun was an Arab sociologist, philosopher, and historian, um, who has been described as the precursive founder of the proto-disciplines that would become sociology, economics, and demography. His work was widely acknowledged by 19th century European scholars like uh, Nicola Machiavelli and the Renaissance uh, uh, thinkers like Hegel, who considered Ibn Khaldun to be one of the greatest philosophers of the Middle Ages. The British historian Arnold Toynbee has called Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah the greatest work of its kind. Ernest Jellner, uh, one of the professors of philosophy and logic at the London School of Economics, considered Khaldun's definition of government the best in the history of political theory. And Georgetown University's Professor Ibrahim Owais, an economist and historian, made the following observations about, uh, and I have to read this because it's his important quote. He says, His significant contributions to economics, however, should place him in the history of economic thought as a major forerunner, if not the father of economics. A title which has been given to Adam Smith, whose great works were published some 370 years after Ibn Khaldun's death. Not only did Ibn Khaldun plant the germinating seeds of classical economics, whether in production, supply or cost, but he also pioneered in consumption, demand and utility, the cornerstones of modern economic theory. So it's quite a statement to make by Professor Reis Arif, isn't it? Yes, obviously he held uh, Ibn Khaldun in, in very high regard. And Professor Weiss goes on to state, and I'll quote again, um, he's referring to Ibn Khaldun, he was preceded by a variety of economic but elemental ideas to which he gave substance and depth. Centuries later, these same ideas were developed by the mercantilists, the commercial capitalists of the 17th century, people such as Sir William Petty, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Thomas R. Malthus, Karl Marx and John Maynard Keynes, to name only a few, and finally by contemporary economic theorists. If we bring this up to the present time, um, in 1981, the US president of the time, Ronald Reagan, he cited Ibn Khaldun as an influence on his supply-side economic policies, which later became known as Reaganomics. And he actually paraphrased Ibn Khaldun, who said that in the beginning of the dynasty, great tax revenues were gained from small assessments and at the end of the dynasty small tax revenues were gained from large assessments. President Reagan said that his goal uh, was to try to get down to the small assessments and the great revenues. Ibn Khaldun had outlined early theories of division of labour, taxes, scarcity and economic growth and he was also one of the first to study the origin and causes of poverty. He argued that poverty was a result of the destruction of morality and human values, and he also looked at what factors contribute to wealth, such as consumption, government and investment, which is a precursor to our modern GDP formula. Um, finally, he also argued that poverty was not necessarily a result of poor financial decision-making, but of external consequences, and therefore the government should be involved in alleviating poverty. 
Not many people in the West would know, but over 400 years before Adam Smith, Ibn Khaldun pointed out that it was labor and not gold or silver that was the source of wealth of a nation and advocated for a division of labor. Ibn Khaldun's work did not reach the West till 1697, and even then it was a French biography of his life by an Orientalist. Some suggest that Adam Smith could have been exposed to Ibn Khaldun's ideas during the transfer of trade and ideas between Europe and the Muslim world. Now, Ibn Khaldun lived during one of the weakest periods of the Muslim civilization, where the Islamic Caliphate was continuously declining after the attack of the Mongols and the Crusaders in the east and the attacks of the Christians in Andalusia. Power in the Muslim lands was now passing on to rulers that came from Turk and Mongol stock. Fierce warriors from the steppes who would leave their own legacies in due course. However, their priorities and drives were quite different from the Arab Muslims of the Golden Age that we've talked of in these programs. So I'm going to take us through the Ottoman Turks because they made some massive contributions but in different areas. Ottoman Empire, Iqbal, uh, was formed by the Turkish tribes in Anatolia, uh, known as Asia Minor. It grew to be one of the most powerful states in the world during the 15th and 16th centuries. The Ottoman period spanned for more than 600 years and came to an end only in 1922 when it was replaced by the Turkish Republic and various successor states in southeastern Europe and the Middle East. At its height, the empire encompassed most of uh, southeastern Europe to the gates of Vienna, including present-day Hungary, the Balkan region, Greece and parts of Ukraine. Portions of the Middle East now are that are occupied by Iraq, Syria, Israel and Egypt. For instance, North Africa as far as Algiers and the large, larger part of the Arabian Peninsula. According to legend, Usman, the founder of the Ottoman Empire on his deathbed, gave the following advice to his eldest son and successor. And I quote, My son, I am dying and I die without regret because I leave such a successor as thou art. Be just. Love goodness and show mercy. Give equal protection to all thy subjects and extend the law of the Prophet. Such are the duties of princes upon earth. And it is thus that they bring on them the blessings of heaven. I mean, this is where, you know, uh, his son really um, started the major expansion, Oran, uh, his eldest son, uh, who was supported by Aladdin, his younger uh, brother as well. And then the next, uh, the grandson of Osman Bezid, the first really expanded the empire massively and adopted the title of Sultan of uh, Rum. Um, and uh, the empire under his reign included Thrace, uh, except Constantinople at that stage, which was still under Byzantine, Macedonia, Bulgaria, and parts of Serbia and Europe as well. But um, he really came to a bad end at the hands of Timur, uh, sort of Mongol Turkic. Uh, uh, ruler of the Timurid dynasty, uh, and in fact died under captivity. And luckily, one of his sons survived to carry on the uh, Ottoman uh, line. So the Ottoman Empire survived through uh, that line. Uh, and the surviving son of Bezid, the, who had the fourth son, which is Mahmud the first, became the Sultan, uh, giving some stability to the empire. And later, his grandson not only re-established the glory of the Ottoman Empire. Muhammad II became known as Muhammad the Conqueror who took Constantinople. So you can see the ups and downs of uh, uh, empire as well. 
But from the taking of Constantinople, uh, Arif, you know, the empire really established itself as a major player in Europe. Just take us through that phase, Arif. Yes, so luckily the Ottoman Empire was incredibly tolerant by the standards of empires uh, and of the world in general at that time. Um, Actually, at its height, the Ottoman Empire was home to more Christians and Muslims, and its success lay in its centralised structure as much uh, as the territory it controlled. It had control of some of the world's most lucrative trade routes. This led to vast wealth. Uh, And while it had an an impeccably organised military system, this led to military might. As the Ottoman Empire expanded, it started to gain uh, control of the important trade routes. Uh, The capture of Constantinople in 1453 to the Ottoman Turks was a great uh, key event. And along with their victory, they now had significant control of the Silk Road, uh, which European countries used to trade with Asia. Uh, the 10th and longest reigning sultan of the Ottoman Empire was Suleiman I, and he reigned between 1520 and 1566 uh, of the CE, and he was commonly known as Suleiman the Magnificent. Um, he became a prominent monarch of 16th century Europe, presiding over the apex of the Ottoman Empire's economic, military and political power. On the 29th of August 1526, he defeated Louis II of Hungary at the Battle of Mohacs, and the Ottoman Empire became the preeminent power in Central Europe. In 1530, Suleiman laid siege to Vienna, sowing the seeds of a bitter Ottoman-Habsburg rivalry that lasted until the 20th century. Now, while Suleiman was known as uh, the Suleiman the Magnificent to the Turks, he was known as the Lawgiver or uh, Kunani uh, Suleiman and uh, Lord Kinross in his uh, book on the Ottomans rights not only was he a great military campaigner a man of the soul as his father and great grandfather had been before him he differed from them in the extent to which he was also a man of the pen he was a great legislator standing out in the eyes of his people as a high-minded sovereign and a magnanimous exponent of uh, justice in fact, probably Suleiman the Magnificent and Akbar the Great will come to later on were two of the greatest rulers of the world at that uh, stage. Now, from the earliest days, the Ottomans uh, developed a very strong navy which played a crucial role in the expansion of the uh, empire across the Aegean and the Black Sea. In the years following their conquest of Constantinople in 1450, the Ottoman Turks dominated the Black Sea and the Mediterranean with their fleets of galleys and they even ventured into the Atlantic and, uh, you know, coasts of uh, uh, England, uh, etc. as well. Um, so, I'm just take us through sort of the 17th and 18th century developments. Well, in the rest of the 17th and 18th centuries, however, the operations of the Ottoman fleet were largely limited to the Mediterranean Sea, the Black Sea, the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea. The 18th century was a period of stalemate for the Ottoman fleet, with numerous victories matched by equally numerous defeats as well. The 19th century, however, saw further decline in the Ottoman naval power, despite occasional recovery. In uh, 1875, during the reign of Sultan Abdul Aziz, the Ottoman navy had 21 battleships and 173 other types of warships, ranking as the third largest navy in the world after the British and the French navies. Up to 1850, the Ottoman Empire was the only empire to have never contracted uh, foreign debt and its financial situation was generally sound. 
However, between 1854 and 1881, the Ottoman Empire went through a crucial phase of history. The Crimea War, for instance, uh, that lasted from 1853 to 1856, resulted in the necessity of taking on foreign debt. Beginning with the first foreign loan in uh, 1854, this process involved sporadic attempts by Western powers to impose some control. From 1863, a second and more intense phase began, leading to well snowball effect of accumulated debt. In 1875, with external debt that mounted to 242 million Turkish pounds, over half of the budgetary expenditures going towards servicing that debt. It shows basically the slow decline of the Ottoman Empire. And we're going to cover some of this with the rise of the European powers because obviously the two processes are linked. But, you know, they controlled the great Silk Road and that's why they were such a strong and mighty empire. But over time, of course, all empires have been overstretched. Um, let's move on now to the Safavid dynasty a little bit before going on to the uh, uh, Mughal dynasty. The Safavid dynasty, which sort of covered a period 1501 to 1736 of the Common Era or Christian Era, was one of the most significant ruling dynasties of modern Iran and is often considered the beginning of modern Persian history. I say modern because we've covered in many programs the ancient uh, uh, Persian history. The Safavid Shahs established the Twelver School of Shia Islam as the official religion of the empire, marking one of the most important turning points in Muslim history. The Safavids at uh, the height of their power controlled all of what is now Iran, um, Republic of Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Armenia, Eastern Georgia, parts of the Northern Caucasus, including Southern Russia, Iraq, Kuwait and Afghanistan, as well as parts of Turkey, Syria, Pakistan, Turkmenistan, but, of course, they were always in clash with their Sunni neighbor, the Ottomans. So, Arif, just take us through um, that, that clash and competition. So, yes, uh, the neighboring and staunchly Sunni Ottoman Empire to the west uh, was the strongest empire in the region, and they disagreed with the Shia Safavids over basic religious tenets and practices, similar to the disputes between various Catholic and Protestant powers in Europe. Um, and a number of conflicts led to the Safavids losing territory to the Ottomans. The Safavids made Iran a centre of art, architecture, poetry and philosophy, which influenced her neighbours in the region. The artistic achievements um, and the prosperity of the Safavid period are best represented by Isfahan, which was the capital of Shah there's some absolutely beautiful Shabas. buildings in that part of the world, aren't there? I'm just, so, absolutely, yeah, absolutely yes. yeah, center. Yeah, sorry, Arif Kalyan. Yes, so you're right. They had parks, libraries, mosques uh, that amazed Europeans, and they had not seen anything like this at home. Um, the Persians called it Nifsi Jahan, half the world, meaning that to see it was to see half the world. And Isfahan became one of the world's most elegant cities, and in its heyday, it was also one of the largest with a population of one million. It had 163 mosques, 48 religious schools, 1,801 shops and 263 public baths. Now the Safavids benefited from their geographical position at the centre of the trade routes of the ancient world and they became rich on the growing trade between Europe and the Islamic civilizations of Central Asia and India. So now we move to the third major empire and that was the, the Mughal Empire, sort of 1526 to 1857. Um, as we've covered in previous programs, specifically on the Mughal Empire, it's a two-part series we made. The empire was founded by Babur, 
um, a Central Asian ruler who was descended from the Turco-Mongol conqueror Timur, we mentioned, who defeated Bazid from the Ottomans. Um, and uh, Baba's empire, unfortunately, at the start was weak and unstable, and his son Hamayu uh, was driven out of India and had to seek uh, really shelter in uh, Iran, in, per- in Persia, by the rebels. Hamayu's exile in Persia established diplomatic ties between the Safavid and the Mughal courts uh, and led to increasing Persian cultural influence in the Mughal Empire. The restoration of Mughal rule began after Hamayun's triumphant return from Persia in 1555, but he died from a fatal accident shortly afterwards. Hamayun's son, Akbar, succeeded to the throne under the regent uh, Bahram Khan, who helped consolidate the Mughal Empire. So Amjad, just take us through his reign and uh, developments from... Akbar's reign... um he reigned from 1556 to 1605, is regarded one of the greatest golden ages of Indian history, and many regard him as one of the greatest rulers of all time. Akbar worked hard to win over the hearts and minds of the Hindu leaders. He believed that all religions should be tolerated and that rulers' duty was to treat all believers equally, whatever their belief was. In 1562, he married, for instance, a Rajput princess, a daughter of the Raja of Amber, now known as Jaipur. She became one of his senior wives and the mother of his successor, Jangir. Her male relations in Amber joined Akbar's council and the two armies merged and became Akbar's power base. The Mughal Empire under Akbar stretched from Bengal in the east to Godavi River in the south to Kashmir in the north, for instance, and the Indus Valley in the west. Akbar's redstone capital at Fatehpur Sikri expressed a great striking synthesis of Islamic and Hindu traditions of architecture, a feature that was followed by his son Jangir, uh, reaching a climax under his grandson Shah Jahan, who reigned from 1628 to 1657, who commissioned the famed building of Taj Mahal, one of the greatest monuments and one of the greatest buildings of the world. Shah Jahan's son Aurangzeb continued this expansion of the Mughal Empire, which reached its peak, becoming the second largest to have existed in the Indian subcontinent, spanning 4 million square kilometres at zenith, after probably the Great Maurya Empire, which spanned 5 million square kilometres. The Mughals were responsible for building an extensive road system, creating a uniform currency, the rupee and the unification of the country. The empire had an extensive road work, which was vital to the economic infrastructure built by a public works department set up by the Mughals, which designed, constructed and maintained roads linking towns and cities across the empire, making trade easier to conduct. During the Mughal rule, the Indian economy was one of the largest and most prosperous in the world. The gross domestic product GDP of India during Mughal rule in 1600 was estimated at 22% of the world economy, the second largest in the world behind the Ming dynasty only. And of course, during Aurangzeb time, it became the number one uh, overtaking the the Chinese uh, as well uh, at that stage. So this was quite an uh, achievement. Uh, Arif, uh, again, take us through some of the... Economic factors? So up until about 1750, India actually produced about 25% of the world's industrial output. Uh, Manufactured goods and cash crops from the Mughal Empire were sold throughout the world. Key industries included textiles, shipbuilding and steel. And processed products included cotton, textiles, yarn, thread and silk. Metalware and foods such as sugar and oils and butter were also produced. 
In early modern Europe, there were significant demands for products from the Mughal Empire, uh, from India, particularly cotton textiles, uh, as well as goods such as spices, peppers, silks, etc. And European fashion, for example, became increasingly dependent on Mughal Indian textiles and silks. From the late 17th century to the early 18th century, uh, Mughal India accounted for 95% of British imports from Asia, Uh, and the Bengal Suba province alone accounted for 40% of Dutch imports from Asia. In contrast, there was very little demand for European goods in Mughal India, which was largely self-sufficient, and thus Europeans had very little to offer, except for some woolens, unprocessed metals and a few luxury items. This led to a big trade imbalance, and it caused the Europeans to export large quantities of gold and silver to Mughal India in order to pay for South Asian imports. Um, with the death of the last great Mughal emperor, Aurangzeb in 1707, the empire started to decline. And in 1739, the Persian army of Nadir Shah, described by some as the last great Asiatic military conqueror, sacked Delhi and thereafter the former Mughal provinces of India offered only nominal allegiances to the Mughal empire. And that was the incredible Mughal empire of India, Let's now move to the Chinese dynasty. We're coming towards the end of the program. Now, we've covered uh, China in a detail in the Living History, a four-part program covering all the different dynasties from the foundations and unification of China to the Han Dynasty, the First Golden Age, the Tang Dynasty, um, and the variety of emperors and their great uh, contributions. Um, it indeed has been one of the greatest civilizations, and that is still continuing to contribute in our modern world. Um, under the Song Dynasty, which was from 960 to 1279 uh, CE, China became the first country to issue banknotes, a true paper currency. Um, and during its reign, China also made major improvements to navigation and a variety of other areas which were covered in those programs. Of course, the Yuan dynasty, which took over, and that was the Mongols uh, as well, with Kublai Khan ruling uh, the dynasty, um, banknotes and paper currency was much more widespread throughout the uh, Yuan Empire and in uh, China. And again, many other contributions were made, and uh, all these marvels were passed on by Marco Polo to European uh, people uh, who couldn't imagine such riches. Uh, of course, the Mongol um, dynasty uh, came to uh, an end as well. The Mongol dynasty was replaced by the Ming dynasty, who ruled China from 1368 to 1644. And um, we covered in those programs one uh, of the greatest uh, sea admirals belonged to this era, and he was a Muslim uh, admiral, Zhang He. And China had the biggest naval force in the world where they really exchanged goods with different nations, etc. And they could have ruled the seas and the world uh, if they chose to, but they just decided to exchange, really, and have a trade across with the world. And they were quite content with their empire that they had in uh, China. So that was the greatness of these uh, empires. I think we've done it uh, a reasonable amount of justice worth um, in terms of the great empires before the rise of Europe. So our next program is going to be really about the rise of uh, Europe. I hope listeners will uh, tune in to that. So I want to thank Kamjid and Arif for their contributions uh, uh, for this program. This has been a fascinating journey really of uh, how different nations and empires have uh, developed. Please do give us your feedback at our Twitter hashtag uh, at VI Living History. 
and do visit our website www.voiceofislam.co.uk and listen to a variety of programs as well and give us feedback on those as well. So until next time, assalamu alaikum.